Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat of any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the trees, from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. I'm getting very hot. And, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. To Adam he said, because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food, food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. Then the whole world had one language and a common speech. As people moved eastward, they found a plain in China and settled there. They said to each other, come, let's make brick and bake them thoroughly. They used brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. Then they said, come, let's build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heaven. So, they, so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we'll be scattered over the face of the whole earth. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower the people were building. The Lord said, If as one people speak in the same language they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do. Then nothing they plan to do, where are we? I'll say that again. The Lord said, if as one people speak in the same language, they've begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so they will not understand each other. So the Lord scattered them from there over all the earth and they stopped building the city. That is why it was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of the whole earth. From there, the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you. That was a lot of reading. Thank you, Oberiri. Grateful. If I've not met you yet, my name is Bijan. I'm the pastor for our church. And today is week two of a sermon series that we began last Sunday. And we're asking the question, what does the story of the Bible say about work? your jobs, your careers, your vocation? What does the message of the Bible have to say with our work? 
Last week, if you were here, if you weren't here, I encourage you to grab the podcast online. But last week, what we said was part one, sort of chapter one in the biblical story about faith and work, is that work as made by God is good. There's an inherent goodness or even a beauty in our work. And it's a gift that God has given to his people, given to the world, to work even as he works. Work is good. And yet, most of you, if I were to ask you the question, describe your work or describe your job or describe the place that you work at, you might have a lot of words to use, but good might not be the word that comes to mind. The reality is that even if there are parts of our jobs that we love and enjoy, for many of us, our work or our experience of work is filled with pain. It's filled with confusion. It's filled with discouragement and frustration. Hardly would we all say our work is good. Why is that? And that's what we're going to talk about today. If we're looking at the story of the Bible, God creates everything good. But when we get to Genesis chapter 3... Sin comes into the world and it spoils everything. The passages that you heard read, the first part was about what's called the fall, where human beings rebelled against God and as a result, the world fell from God's creational beauty and goodness into a world in which everything was now spoiled by sin. And that includes our work. And so that's what we want to talk about today. Why is work so hard? How does sin impact our work? And so to do that today, there are three passages. There's quite a lot. I'm going to try to move fast. You're going to have to stay with me. But there are three things that I want to show you today from these passages that can help us understand why work is so hard. So first, we need to look at the fall. Second, we need to see the fall and its impact on work. And then third, the rescue. How work can be rescued. So the fall, the fall and work and the rescue of our work. You ready? Let's take a look. First, the fall. Chapter 2 and verse 25 ends this way. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. Now, in chapters 1 and 2 of Genesis, we are given a vision of God's perfect creation. God makes everything. He puts Adam and Eve in the garden, and he says, enjoy. And he tells them, there's one tree in the garden. I don't want you to eat from that one tree, but everything else is yours. Enjoy, work the land, cultivate it. And ultimately, God is saying to Adam and Eve, walk with me, live in humble obedience to me, relate to me. And what's interesting is when the chapter ends, the verse I just read, the state of our first parents, Adam and Eve, the text says they were naked and not ashamed. Do you know what that means? They were comfortable in their own skin. They felt safe. They had nothing to hide. They didn't need to prove themselves. There wasn't the pressure of comparison. They were in the garden, perfectly in relationship to God, perfectly in relationship to each other. They were fully seen and fully loved. And that's what God made you for. That's how God made us. To be able to be at the same time seen to the bottom and yet love to the sky. And so our first parents in the garden, they experienced that. Naked, not ashamed, no need to hide, no fear of being seen, fully known and fully loved. And then everything changed. Because in chapter three and verse one, as we just heard read a few moments ago, we're introduced to a character called the serpent. 
In other parts of the Bible, we know this serpent is the devil or the evil one. The devil or the evil one is hell-bent on destroying people's life with God. He's hell-bent on destroying our experience of God. And notice what happens. The evil one, the serpent, comes to Adam and Eve in the garden. And he says to them, did God really say? It's verse 1 of chapter 3. Did God really say? This is the first moment where human beings experience temptation. And here's what the temptation was. Do you know what the evil one did? He came to Adam and Eve and he assaulted God's generosity and God's integrity. That's what the evil one did. He came to Adam and Eve and said, you can't really trust that God loves you. God isn't really loving. And he went on to say, he's holding out on you. He's keeping something back from you. He doesn't want you to experience something that's going to be really fun and enjoyable in your life. So the evil one comes to Adam and Eve with an assault on God's trustworthiness, on uh, assault on God's love for them. Sinclair Ferguson, pastor who's helped me a great deal thinking about this, says, when the serpent accomplished in Eve's mind and in her affections was divorcing God's commands from his character, abstracting his law from his love. So Eve was deceived into hearing law only as a negative deprivation and not as the wisdom of a heavenly father. This is the distortion, the lie about God that has entered the bloodstream of the human race. Do you see what's happening in the fall? The devil, the evil one, the serpent comes to Adam and Eve and says, look, you can't really trust God. He's holding out on you. And so you'll be better off if you take your life into your own hands. You have to take the reins of your life. You have to take control. Rather than live in humble submission and obedience to God, you have to be the captain of your fate. You have to be the master of your own destiny. God doesn't really know what's best for you. So you should live your life for yourself. And that's why here at RCL, we often say that sin fundamentally is not just bad behavior. Sin is a posture of the heart. Sin is saying to God, not your will be done, but instead my will be done. Sin is saying to God, I don't want you. I don't need you. I know better about how to run my life. And so we grab the reins. And that's exactly what Adam and Eve did in the garden. Another quote to make the point, John Mark Comer puts it this way. The serpent came at Eve with a simple and yet evocative idea. God's not as good or as wise he claims to be. He's holding out on you. So if you seize autonomy from God and you do your own thing, you'll be better off. This is the lie underneath all the lies. These are the serpent stock and trade lies. Lies about who God is, about who we are, and about what makes for a happy life. That was the singular temptation of the evil one. Take life into your own hands. And here's a question. Some of you might be thinking, is that really such a big deal? I mean, if I want to be the master of my faith, the captain of my destiny, if I want to do my own thing, is that, why does God care so much? Here's why. Because he loves you. And he knows that you are not at all capable of guiding yourself. That you are woefully inadequate to the task of satisfying the deepest longings and desires of your heart. 
And every single time we turn to self instead of turning to God to try to give ourselves a sense of meaning or identity or of peace, we're like drinking salt water and hoping it'll quench our thirst. We only make the parchment deeper and we're gasping for something to heal our souls. And yet that's what human beings have been doing since the Garden of Eden. Let me show you one more thing. Adam and Eve, temptation comes. You can't trust God, so they take matters into their own hands. And instantly, do you remember we said chapter 2 and verse 25, they were naked, not ashamed. They felt safe, comfortable in their own skin, nothing to hide, perfect relationship to God, perfect relationship with each other. Jump down to chapter 3 and verse 7. Look at what they now experience. It says the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and they made coverings for themselves. Where they once felt safe and free, they now feel guilt and shame. Where they once were safe in their own skin, now they know they have to hide and cover. And by the way, not that I've ever worn fig leaves, but if you read about this, you'll know fig leaves are one of the itchiest possible plants to put on your body. And for some people, fig leaves can cause a burning sensation if they touch your skin. And this is what happens to human beings, metaphorically speaking. We turn from God and we say, we're going to do it our own way. And you know what we do? We cover ourselves with fig leaves. We just increase the problem and we make things worse. And interestingly, and this is now where you see we have a connection of faith and work. If you were here last week, what was Adam's job? It was to be a gardener, right? And so what Adam does in his moment of feeling exposed and vulnerable, instead of using the garden to help worship and honor God, he now uses the garden, the fig leaves in the garden to cover his own sense of shame and guilt. And at some level, we're all doing that with our work. So let's now turn and ask the question, if that's the fall, how does the fall impact our work? This is where we're going to spend the bulk of our sermon today. How does the fall impact our work, our jobs, our careers, our vocations? How does this inward tendency to turn from God to self impact our work and our working environments? Well, I've given you two more passages, Genesis chapter 3, a little bit later in Genesis 11, and we're going to look at both of them in turn. First, Genesis chapter 3, verses 17 through 19. Here, what we see is because of the fall, because of sin, now there's a futility in all of our work. There's futility in all of our work. So look with me, if you would, verse 17 of chapter 3. God says to Adam, look, you disobeyed me. You and Eve ate the tree that you weren't supposed to. So he says, verse 17, cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you. Now, stay with me. Adam's job is a gardener. And prior to this moment, gardening was all joy. He would plant seeds. There would be water. Things would grow. There would be fruitfulness. But what's happened Human beings have turned away from God. They've rebelled. They've said, we're going to do it our own way. And what's the result? (laughs) Work that used to be fruitful has now become fruitless. Thorns and thistles come up from the ground. Thorns and thistles choke life. They are not beautiful. They do not provide food. They just make gardening harder, 
more difficult, more futile, more dangerous. And God says, now instead of work being good and work being worship, your experience of work is going to be, verse 17, painful toil. That's a difficult phrase to translate in Hebrew. It means something like futility, frustration. Work that used to be good is now going to be painful toil. And honestly, if you think about your own work, if you think about your career, maybe things that you hope for in the future, that's the phrase that often comes to mind, isn't it? This is frustrating. This is difficult. This is discouraging. Let me give you a few examples. Some of you today, right now, are experiencing futility in your work because you feel passionate about something that you haven't figured out a way to get paid for. And that's a weight on your shoulders. You feel like every day you show up to work and you're just grinding through a job that you don't love and you can't find any significance in what you're doing. Does this matter at all? Is this helping anyone? And maybe you have a passion or a desire to be contributing to something else and you just haven't figured out a way to monetize that. And you just feel like, is there ever going to be more joy in my career? It's discouraging. Others of you this morning come into this space with unwanted or extended unemployment. And you're feeling crushed, not only by the need for financial security, but even more than that, the sense of meaninglessness. Like, what am I doing with my life? It's discouraging. It's frustrating. Here's another example. Have you ever had this? In your work, you're able to envision far more than you could ever achieve. I have that almost every week. I think, oh, this is going to be a great sermon. I mean, people are going to say, wow, God showed up today. And then I preach it and I go home and I thought, oh, it was so much better in my head. It was so much better before I started talking. Do you ever have that? Where you're able to envision to see what you could produce and then what actually comes out is far less. It's frustrating, isn't it? Painful toil. Here's one final example. There's so many more, but here's one more. Some of you are in working environments, maybe the place you work, maybe the colleagues, maybe your supervisor, and it's difficult, it's toxic. Maybe there's even abuses of power and toxicity in the workplace. And you love your products, but you can't stand the environment. And you're weighed down by how difficult it is every day to show up and to try to contribute. Now, I could give you so many more examples, things that you're going through, but are you beginning to see God made work and it's good, but the impact of sin, the reality of the fall is not that work is a curse, but work is under the curse, just like everything else in our world. And so we experience every day, every week, every month, even with joy, frustration and pain and futility in our work. So here's a practical application. This sermon is a sermon. This is not career advice, okay? Truly, not career advice. Some of you right now are thinking about your job and your career, and you're thinking, I really, I gotta get out of this place. I gotta get, I gotta quit this job. I gotta go to a new job. I gotta get a new boss. I gotta have a new thing. That may be true. It's good to seek promotion. It's good to find new places of work. It's good to pursue things. Absolutely. But here's what I wanna say as your pastor, because this is a sermon. If you want to leave your current job or if you're tired of your current team because there's thorns and thistles there 
And you think if I could just get to a new spot, then I'll be free of the thorns and thistles. Friend, you are headed for disappointment. Even in the best working environments, we find ourselves engaged in painful toil. And that's not because work is bad. It's because we live in a world that's under the curse of sin. Futility. But here's the second thing I want to show you this morning. Not just is work now tinged with futility, but if you go over to Genesis 11, which was the last passage that we heard today, you see that work not only is futility, but work can become idolatry. Work can become idolatry. So Genesis chapter 11, this is a story that is kind of well-known, probably not well-known as it, as it should be, but this is the story of the Tower of Babel. And here's what happens. These group of people come together and they say, we want to build a city. And so if you look at verse three, it says, they said to each other, come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. And they used brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. Now, it's easy to go past, uh, fast over that, but you know what they're saying? These ancient people, there was a technological innovation. They figured out a new way to make bricks. And presumably, these new bricks enabled them to build things higher and to build faster. So they said, this is great. There's new innovation. There's a new invention. Let's come together in verse 4. Let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. In the Bible, to make a name for yourself, that's to find an identity. That's to figure out who you really are, your sense of worth, your sense of significance. Friends, do you see what's happening? These ancient people who were very talented, who were highly innovative and creative, said, let's go to the city, let's do our work so we can make a name for ourselves. Does that sound familiar? Why do people come to London? Or if you were born and raised here, why are you still in London? We said last week, London is always ranking number one in global surveys as the most desirable city in the world to work in. All the time, some of you very recently have moved to this city to work. And you know what's deep down in our hearts? We came to London for what purpose? To make a name for ourselves. Because we thought, if I can get that job, or if I can get that promotion, or if I can build that thing, or if I can be in that show, or if I can earn this amount of money, then I'll know that I matter. Then I'll know that I'm okay. Then I'll have proved myself. And so just like these people all those years ago, we fled to the city to make a name for ourselves. And according to the Bible, that's idolatry. Idolatry is not just worshiping a statue or an icon. Idolatry, biblically speaking, is looking to anything, even good things, to give you a sense of meaning and worth that God alone was supposed to give you. And for many people in our city, for lots of us in this church, work is an idol. This might be work that you're paid for. This might be a hobby or a vocation. But we look to the things we create with our hands to know that we matter, to know that we've achieved, to know that we're significant. And work, which is a good thing, remember God made it, has now become an ultimate thing. 
and we move to the city to make a name for ourselves. And what's the result? Well, it's the same as what Adam and Eve experienced in the garden. They sow fig leaves together, trying to cover themselves. In Babel, they try to build a tower that reaches to the heavens. Then we're going to know we matter. But you know what? I've lived now in cities for almost 15 years. I've worked with and seen incredibly talented and successful people come to the city. And you know what? They get the job and they make the money and they get the promotion and all of the things they thought were dreams come true. And you know what happens? The tower they built, it's not tall enough. It's never tall enough. It always feels like if I could just add one more brick to the top, then I'll be okay. And just like Adam and Eve in the garden, we're trying to cover ourselves with our work. We're looking to the stuff we produce to give us a name that God was supposed to give. And friends, this is why work can be so difficult and so draining. This is why when you succeed at work, you feel like you could conquer the world. And when you fail at work or maybe are laid off or something awful happens, you're plunged into despair. Because we've connected too much of ourselves and too much of our identity to our work. And we're looking to work to give us a name that God was supposed to give. So here's the question. The fall, we look to self instead of God. It impacts our work, futility, idolatry. Is there any hope? Yes. There is rescue for our work. And if we're going to experience that rescue, we need to see two things. First, we need to learn how to reorder our ambition. And then second, we need to see the God who's come down. So let me just take a few minutes to walk you through these points. First, if our work's going to be rescued, we need to reorder our ambition. It's possible that as you listen to my sermon today, you're saying, okay, going to the city, make a name for yourself. That's bad. I'm not going to do that. So I shouldn't care about work. Is that what you're saying? No. If you think what I'm saying is work doesn't matter, it's unimportant, not only are you not understanding, but you missed last week. Work matters, it's good. Christians, people who are shaped by the Bible, should not reject ambition. They should reorder their ambition. You see, for Christians, many of us, our ambitions are too small. We're trying to get a promotion. We're trying to make money. We're trying to make our mark. Those things are good but they're not worth living for. That's not where you're supposed to get your identity. Christians are meant to reorder their ambition so that their work is not for themselves. It's not to make a name for yourself. It's to do what? It's to bring glory to God. It's to honor him. It's to make his name great. John Stott, who was a minister in London just after World War II, He was an incredibly effective leader. Even if you're looking at his life from a non-religious perspective, you'd have to say that's a guy who is very ambitious and very effective. Very, one of the most, according to Time Magazine, one of the most hundred influential leaders in the 20th century. I mean, a man who was highly ambitious. And he reflected in his life on the nature of ambition. And I'm going to give you now, it's an extended quote, but my friends, it's worth it. Listen to what he said about the nature of ambition, the role it should have in the Christian life. He says, there are only two kinds of ambition. One can be ambitious for oneself or for God. There is no third alternative. Ambitions for self may be modest or they may be grandiose. But whether they're modest or immodest, these are ambitions for self. It's my comfort, my wealth, my status, my power. But ambitions for God, however, 
If they are worthy, they can never be modest. There is something inherently inappropriate about cherishing small ambitions for God. One more time. There is something inherently inappropriate about cherishing small ambitions for God. Christians should be eager to develop their skills, widen their opportunities, extend their influence, be given promotion in their work, not now to boost their own ego or build their own empire, but rather through everything they do to bring glory to God. Ambitious, but differently ambitious, not for self, but for God. Practical application. Last week, I mentioned Dorothy Sayers. She has a great essay called Why Work? At one spot in her essay, she says, look, if you're a Christian and you're a carpenter, what is God's call on your life and your job? Like, what does it mean to be a Christian and a carpenter? You know what she said? It's to make the best possible tables and chairs that you can make so that when people see them, they bring delight to their senses. It's a beautiful chair. And when they sit in them, they don't break. They can sit in them and be safe, maybe to make them affordable so people can buy them. The Christian calling for the carpenter is to make the best possible tables and chairs. And then when someone says, why do you do your work with such passion and excellence? It's to say, well, look at this world God made. Isn't it beautiful? And he made me. And so I get to reflect him by making beautiful things that bring joy to people and serve my community. And maybe, Dorothy Sayers didn't say this, but I'm saying it, maybe you own the Carpenty Company. Maybe you're the one in charge. What does it mean to be a Christian running a company? Are you treating your employees with equity? Are you creating a place where people love to work when they say, I can't wait to show up to work today? Are you the kind of leader who empowers and doesn't exploit the people under you? You see, Christians should be ambitious to be the best possible workers leading in their fields, leading in their industries for God's glory and not for your own. It's inherently inappropriate to cherish small ambitions for God. So reorder your ambition. Don't reject ambition, but be differently ambitious. How do we do that? Well, we have to see the God who came down. If you look at all the stories that we've said this morning, all the passages, the fall and painful toil and the Tower of Babel, what you see is human beings trying to build a name for themselves, trying to reach the heavens. But we can never build a tower tall enough. The thorns are overwhelming. The curse is too deep. But what does the story of the Bible show us? We could try as hard as we want, but we can never build a tower that got to heaven But the good news of the gospel is that God himself has come down from heaven to earth. That in Jesus Christ, God descended and he became one of us. And on the cross, as Jesus died, what did he wear on his head? A crown of thorns. You see, on the cross, Jesus took the curse. The thorns and the thistles that come up from the ground because of our sin, Jesus bore it when he died in our place. You see, Jesus lived the life that you should have lived, but on the cross, he was dying the death that you should have died. And the curse that has spoiled everything, that curse fell on Jesus. And he died in your place. And he now says, look, you can spend all of your life trying to cover yourself through relationships, through being a really good person, through your work. Or you can recognize that all your attempts to cover yourself, you're putting fig leaves over yourself. And it itches and it burns and it doesn't work. 
But do you know what happens later in Genesis 3? We didn't read it. But God sees Adam and Eve. They're walking around in their fig leaves and they're just noticeably uncomfortable. God's like, this is not going to work. So in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 21, you know what it says? Let me read it to you. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife, and he clothed them. God says, give me your fig leaves. It's not working for you. And let me give you garments of skin. This was the first time a sacrifice was ever made in the Bible. And it was to cover the shame and the guilt of God's people. God says, you can't cover yourself, but if you let me, I can cover you through sacrifice. And of course, in the garden on that day, it was pointing forward to the ultimate sacrifice. The ultimate lamb of God who would give his life in sacrifice for his people. And if you see Jesus dying for you, if you see the crown of thorns in his head undoing the curse that we are all living under, if you see him in gracious love coming down, not so we have to work for a name, but to give us a name. If you see Jesus dying on the cross for you and you say, I receive that, I trust in that, I'm going to live for that. Do you know what that means? Now you go out into the city, not working for an identity, but already having one. Now, when you show up to work this afternoon or tomorrow morning, when you give yourselves to your passions and your hobbies, you are working from an identity, not for one. And you say, I'm safe in Jesus. I'm secure in his love. The best is yet to come and everything sad is coming untrue. I'm okay. But if you're working for yourself, if you're covering yourself, your soul is going to be exhausted. You'll never stop. So the invitation today is to see the God who's come down. To see the God who in Jesus took the curse for you, the crown of thorns on his head. To see him giving himself up in sacrifice so you could be covered by his grace and love. And work from an identity, not for one. Let's pray. Our God, help us now as we come to this time of response to be a people who experience these truths. <laughs> we all need this. Lord, today, Lord, some of us are weighed down by how painful toil our work is, by the futility and the idolatry, and we need freedom. We need help. So this morning, as we respond to you, as we sing and surrender, please, by the power of your spirit, bring healing, bring renewal. Help us to see Jesus, the one who bore the curse for us, that we might be a healed and a healing people showing our city what it's like to work from an identity and not for one. We ask this in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen.